Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. You're about to hear a spoiler, and I really am hitting strong on this word spoiler this time, filled discussion about the themes, the characters, and why this film is worth watching and thinking more deeply about. And this film is actually worth thinking more deeply about. I'm Rob Stinnett, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. You are so excited to talk about this movie today. I am. I feel like uh, my whole life has been like leading up to this. Like this is the movie that I was made to talk about. This is so. This is such a big deal. I feel like you know. Do we need to have like a, a therapist standing by for you? Probably so. Probably after the show, I'm gonna be like, ah, oh, I did not do this movie justice. I messed <laughs> it up. Kind of like when you're going into that big job interview. Or like you have like maybe you're going to propose and ask that special person that special question. Have you ever had one of those feelings of like there's so much at stake, so much on the line? That is how I feel right now doing this episode. Wow. Okay. Well, hopefully we uh, do this episode justice for you. Um, I'm so excited to talk to you about it because I just know it means it means so much to you. Yeah, I actually thought this would be an interesting movie to kick off our October episodes So we're launching this episode beginning of October, and this month we're going to do a couple of, like, Halloween-ish scary movies, thrillers, I I don't know, just those type of movies. And so I'm curious from you, Andrew, what is the difference between a horror and a thriller movie to you? Like, if I had to say, one, is Zodiac a horror or thriller, and two, what's the difference between the two? Sure. So that's such a crazy good question, because I think... I, I think we accidentally start talking about this a lot when it comes to scary movies. Yeah. I think you like we said like scary movie and then there's so many little subgenres within this. But I think I think you're right. I think the two are horror and thriller. If this is if you're your first time tuning into this podcast and you're thinking like, how nerdy are these two about films that they're breaking down film genre this early in the podcast? The answer is very nerdy. It's only going to get worse from here. It's like, only getting worse from here. <laughs> so... Okay, so what's the difference between horror and thriller? I would say, and this is a definition that's not going to help at all, but I would say the difference is a horror movie is focused on terror, while a thriller is focused on dread. And that doesn't really help. But here's my definition of that, and that is that horror films are trying to, like, actively keep you scared by things that are coming at you that that terror of there is a man with a knife right in front of me that is terrifying right putting visuals or sounds or things that are audibly terrifying to you so i would put like stranger things even though it's a little bit more family friendly actually in the horror category because the like upside down you have all those creepy vines that are like slithering and it it makes you like actively um, scared for what's on screen. The bats that are eating people, that's terrifying. Yeah. Now, Thriller, on the other hand, I would say is more focused on like dread, which is the fear that comes from the anticipation of something that is inevitably coming at you. Hmm. Um, and so those things are maybe more like an Alfred Hitchcock film, right? Where the things that happen on screen are not like like the birds, right? The birds occasionally attack people and it's terrible, but it's not 
ubiquitous through the film. The terror comes from knowing that the birds attacked somebody, and then you walk outside, and there's just power lines filled with birds. Right. Right? That in itself is not super scary. It's birds on power lines. We see it every day. But now there's this dread of this impending doom. These people have to walk for five minutes under these birds, and you can barely move. Right? That is a thriller to me. Bro, this is a really good definition. Yeah, even though the images might not be actively scary. This is really good. I I mean, (laughs) I was just simply going to say when I think horror movie, what I think is like an amusement park ride. Like, you are being strapped into the roller coaster. And you're going to feel what it feels like. So, the fuel of a horror film is like... Okay, we're going around the corner, and there's breathing, and what's going to turn around there? You yeah, know, it's yeah. like walking down the stairs into a basement, which actually does happen in this movie. But like that's <laughs> that's the stuff that horror movies are made out of, right? Like it's like okay, I'm walking into an abandoned farm late at night, and the music's creepy, and it's just building up, and it's kind of building up to like a shock scare, uh-huh. and it's like several of those, and it's like hey, that's. Like in an action movie, it's kind of like these awesome set pieces, like right. a dude doing the splits on two semis, and that's the fuel of an action movie. <laughs> the fuel of a horror movie is just like, okay, there's going to be another kill, like that sort of thing, or there's going to be another thing, you know, like, right. um, and even Stranger Things season four, like you talked about, especially the first couple episodes are that, like, all right, this person's walking into a graveyard late at night, or they're walking into an old trailer park, and like, all of a sudden, it's a little bit misty, and the music starts getting creepy, and it's like, all right. You're being buckled into the roller coaster and you're going on a thrill ride. Right. And I, and I think in a horror movie, you, you had to actually deliver on that suspense much more frequently, like an action movie, like like you were saying. And in Mission Impossible, if there's not an action set piece once every 15 minutes, you're like, what did I pay for? I think that's that's the horror movie. So the situation is not only is the graveyard creepy, you can't have more than like one. You can't really have two scenes in a row in a horror movie where someone walks through a graveyard and nothing happens. Yep. Right. Like you can do it once and then you're like, oh, we got out of there alive, but you can't do it again. Right. Like you need those actual visual. Someone jumps out with a knife and starts chasing you like like it is is more of a horror movie, even though it's super psychological and great themes. And we are definitely going to talk about that movie one day. How have we not put that on the list? I know it needs to go on the list. It needs to go on the list. But I mean, it's it's actively there in, in, in your face. A horror movie is about something that like lets you experience evil, but like. A thriller, and the reason that I wanted to talk about this movie today is this is a movie that's trying to make sense of evil. It's not necessarily oh, like glorify. Like this is the word my mom would use. It's like she would say, "Oh, these movies like glorify evil. They right. kind of like put a superhero cape on evil." And I think that's a complicated critique. And I think she's right in some ways. And sure. so I do have like fear and trembling of the way that I talk about some of these films, not just because. They're scary, but I'm like, okay, what do they do to society? Like, what do they do to kids who are watching this movie? Should yeah. we be showing these movies to kids? Should we be celebrating these things? And so, because it's like a roller coaster, right? Right. When you get done with it, you're like, oh, that quote evil thing was kind of fun, right? Because I had fun with the scare. It is that adrenaline rush, exactly, right? And so it puts it mentally in like a in a fun box, even if it was scary, there's something to be said about that. Yeah. And so I think that's complicated and maybe we could talk about that in a different episode, but I think this movie is much more at its core trying to make sense of what happens when evil hits. Like Mm -hmm. I was going to get into this later in the podcast, but I think like, you know, podcasts, you know what part of made them really, really popular? What ground zero was (laughs) murder podcast, murder podcast. Like many people, the first podcast they started listening to serial was, as huge as any, you know, film that year or anything else like that. It Absolutely. Kind of 
began a whole thing. And these true crime podcasts have now like become such a thing. I mean, you and I have talked about them, you know, yeah. many of them. They're so anyway, they're the fuel of stories. Um, and this is kind of ground zero for this true crime journalism storytelling. Well, it's Zodiac and then In Cold Blood, the Truman Capote, like uh nonfiction journalist novel, which is an, an incredible masterpiece. I think for me, those are the two things that I think of of like all this true crime stuff, where did it all start? It's it's those two things. It's the Zodiac Killer and it's uh, Truman Capote. Well, let's dive into this actual movie. Um, I'm so excited just to hear you you talk about it. And uh, we experienced it last night together. We went and saw it at the Alamo Draft House. Yeah, so we saw it at the Alamo Draft House in Austin. Andrew is in Austin right now. We're, he's normally in L.A. I'm in Austin, but I'm like, okay, if you're in Austin, we need to go to the Alamo Draft House to see a movie. And one of the things that I love about that place is they don't just show current movies, but you get the experience of seeing a classic movie with an audience on the massive screen. Yeah. And so I was scrolling through the movies that were coming and I saw Zodiac was there and I circled it and I was like, bro, it's on. We've talked about this movie. It's a perfect kickoff to October movie. It's, it was it was super perfect. And uh, yeah, it was it was great seeing it on on the big screen. Um, so the first time I saw this movie, I saw it 10 years ago after it was in theaters. So my first ex- exposure to this movie was on a small screen in my dorm room in college. And I didn't know anything about the Zodiac Killer. I knew he was like the most famous serial killer ever. Um, but my sort of young brain just assumed, and here comes a spoiler, guys. We've warned you several times. Um, it's also a spoiler for history. Um, I assumed we caught the Zodiac Killer. I thought, I thought that's where this movie was going. And um, they don't. <laughs> and we haven't. <laughs> and we haven't. And it's in, it's like... The point, you know, there's so much of this movie is about the unanswered questions. And that, for a large part, I think, is is the meaning of this movie. But it's not what I thought I was walking into. Right. I was ready to walk into, like, a scary police procedural in which, at the end of the day, yeah, they might catch him in a scary basement because it's Zodiac and it's David Fincher and it's going to be super scary. But, like, I was expecting a pretty decent bow on this movie and for us to get the Zodiac. And that's just not what this movie is. So did you not like it because, and this is the first viewing. Sure. Did you not like it because it was open-ended or did you not like it because it was boring? Both. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think I actually found it a little bit boring. Because you wanted Silence of the Lambs, right? I wanted Silence of the Lambs. I thought that's what I was going, going in for was like a Silence of the Lambs, even like a seven. Yeah. Right? Where like, Everything is converging sort of to this big climactic point at right. the end. A little bit more classic like film structure, yeah. which I would love to get into talking about David Fincher and his abhorrence of a three act structure. <laughs> yeah, and David Fincher did direct seven as well. And yes. so that's part of the backdrop of this film is this is the guy who directed the kind of Hollywood pop serial killer movie yep. and this is the pendulum kind of swinging the other way this is much more of a, even a drama i would say this is like on the outskirts of thriller yeah right it's it has so much on its mind psychologically and much less on its mind like horror and so i didn't know what i was watching and i kept being d- 
disappointed, I think, by the genre of this of this movie. And so I didn't get the real experience of what it was because of my own expectations. I think I sat down with some friends and I was like, hey, let's watch a scary movie. And then it was this movie. And I felt like maybe I was bummed out that I hadn't treated my friends to what I thought I was doing. You're like, oh, another conversation in the San Francisco Chronicle about <laughs> cartoons. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, so I just didn't get the best like experience of it. And so I was so glad I got to see it again with you yesterday knowing what the movie was 10 years removed so not remembering it really well yeah and I had a really different experience I really enjoyed it yesterday well I want to get into that in a moment but I think it is important to also talk about with this movie that your experience is similar to most moviegoers which is this is a movie that flopped commercially and it didn't flop critically but it did flop in the Oscars and Mm. this movie comes out in 2007 which this is probably my hot take of the podcast but I think 2007 is the greatest film year of my lifetime. Like, if I had to pick one year that I'm like, the most amazing movies came out in that year, I would pick 2007. I would ride with that. I'll take the 2007 lineup of movies versus any other year. Um, Wow. And so I think it's just, and there's three movies which I think are maybe the best movies of the 2000s, which is No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood, and Zodiac. Like, those three movies are masterpieces yes by three of our best living filmmakers and actively working filmmakers all uh-huh. three of them um and it's just incredible and then 2007 also has movies like juno it has movies like knocked up it yep. has movies like uh super bad and then it has like other like gone baby gone it's got the assassination of jesse james by robert ford the coward it's got like uh just this wide for 310 to yuma actually is yep. another movie that i adore totally that's 2007 and so that's been kind of swept under, under the carpet because of all these the other other great like almost westerny you know movies that are a little less popcorny it's 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 one of the best westerns of the 2000s for sure and so it's just got this like hit after hit that keeps coming in even the like lesser hits like i am legend is like the hollywood popcorn movie totally but that's a great fun movie you know i'm not gonna make a will smith joke here i almost did and i'm not gonna do it (laughs) so can i tell you something about 2007 yeah that was my first year of film school oh that was my first year going into into film school and so i saw almost every movie that you just said in theaters because that's what i was doing that year was seeing movies with my friends um that were all in, in in film school and I thought that year I was like, oh, this is what great movies are. I've just been missing it. Yeah. <laughs> but in reality, I was just getting the app, like the smorgasbord of like great, deep, complicated storytelling. Yeah, it's I mean, it's just like some of these years, like the stars align with different projects and that sort of thing. I yeah. Mean, but anyway, all those movies are coming out. And yeah. My point in this conversation sure, sure, sure. is that Zodiac gets overshadowed by those movies. Mm-hmm. And so there's a little bit of like defender in me that's like hey listen zodiac was actually this great film in the midst of other great movies this movie feels like an oscar darling and and i forget that it is a contemporary to all the other films that you just mentioned because they are the you know the standouts of the oscars in the conversation that year i think there's a second wave of like love for this movie and now it's propped up and many people i think this is david fincher's best movie and i okay i think david fincher is one of the more interesting filmmakers Mm -hmm. last 20 30 years definitely Fight Club, he's got Seven, he's got Social Network, he's got Gone Girl, he has Mindhunter, you know, a, mm-hmm. like Netflix series, which is very much in the vein of Zodiac. Started House of Cards. Yeah, he House of Cards he Directed began. the first few episodes and was the executive producer on. Right, so he, you know, so he's not like a lighthearted, like, of a, he's nope. not Nicholas Sparks. It's not like, hey, if you want just a, like, lighthearted hang or, like, a real, like, like, 
this guy is like interested in kind of the dark side of humanity, but I think he d- he never nails it more than he does in this film right here. Yeah, and he's not just interested in the dark side of humanity in the in, in the way that like he's thoughtful about it, right? Like I I think we think of Fincher and we're like, oh, he's that like scary R-rated director. That 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 might be kind of like the cheap derivative yeah. explanation of David Fincher. But he's he really is like thoughtful about like, why are people the way they are? Like seven is a visually gross movie. Like the images in that movie are really gross. But the movie is being really thoughtful about how why does evil happen? Where does it come from? And how do we respond to that? How do different people at different places in their life respond to evil? What do we do with it? I think that's very much at the heart of Zodiac as, as well. It seems to be on. Fincher's mind. What do we do with evil in the world? Okay, so you see it for the first time in your dorm room with some friends. Like, hey, this is the scariest movie ever made. And then it's like typewriters and telephones. (laughs) (laughs) What did you think last night? What did you think rewatching it? It was so much better than I remember because my expectations were really low. I also knew that like I was wrong. Like, I don't know if you've ever like seen a movie and you're like, I didn't I didn't like that. And then everyone in your life is like, this is the best movie ever. And you go like, huh. I must be wrong. <laughs> you know, like you just accept that there was something I missed. I think that's where I've been with Zodiac for probably the last five years is like I wasn't in the right spot. So I'm definitely wrong. Yeah. Right. Um, that's and that's not to say that everyone's film taste doesn't matter. But sometimes you go like, I should give that a second shot. And I was so glad I did yesterday. It was a thoughtful, almost meditation on what do we do when we can't process evil in the way that Hollywood does Mm. when the good guys struggle to track down what the inevitable victory should be. Yeah. Um, and how do you deal with that struggle and what is healthy and what is not? It's much more meditative. And I think I'm at a point in my life where I like, I'm into a two hour meditation on what do we do with struggle? Yeah. You know, why do you think this movie is so loved and why do you think this movie like resonates and it's kind of lasted so long? Like what is it that kind of cuts through? Cause there's other movies that kind of sure. meditate on these things or think about these things, but what differentiates Zodiac to you? Like I've thought about this a bunch, but like before sure. I bring in all these thoughts and everything yeah. else, I'm curious for you, like what, what does jump out? To I you? think it's, I think it's two things. I think it is hitting on something that is at the soul of us, which we definitely see in this true crime podcast obsession or documentary obsession that SNL is like parodied and right. Like I, I think we're past the surprise of like, Oh look, humanity is kind of obsessed with, you know, the, the, the fact that there is evil next door and what that could mean. Right. Like um, I, I think it's on the, on the front end of looking into our obsession with un- understanding the unknown, the evil, unknown and then i also think it is just a really i was gonna say tight and it's not a tight movie it's kind of a little bit sprawling and has an interesting rhythm and momentum that is very different and probably threw me off on my first viewing but it is incredibly meticulously well-made movie it's fincher at his fincheriest yes um he he is such a perfectionist of uh, a director in the way he moves the camera in a way that is like omniscient um, so that it's like perfectly tracking with certain things and it's not on a robot arm. And um, like he he is such a perfectionist that I think that this movie is not only a great story with great performances and everything, but it is like a masterpiece of filmmaking craft. And I think people that are sitting down not with a bucket of popcorn that 
art washes over you and you go, this is like amazing. Yeah, we talked about this in Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, right? Where it was mm-hmm. like every single shot is like so breathtaking and like sure, yeah. immerses you in the world. And like that, I think, is what Zodiac does as well. Yeah, it just, it, with a very different emotion. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, I have a list uh, yeah. because like I haven't had a list for a couple episodes. And so I thought, you know what? It's time. I'm bringing a list back. So I have six reasons of why Zodiac is one of these films that just sticks with me and sure. I think about all the time. And like it's weird because like I'm not necessarily a super like dark movie guy. Like I don't like E.T. is one of my favorite movies. Sure. Which is just ridiculously sentimental. Back to the future, <laughs> you know, like um movies that are just like fun and sentimental, like I adore. Yeah. But this is one of the dark ones that I just like really like watched and thought about and I kind of keep returning to and keep thinking about. Yeah. And I've asked it to myself, like, what is it about this film that like draws me in? And sort of makes it like this is probably like Rob goes to therapy. So session where I'm like, I'm gonna give six reasons. Oh, uh, awesome. Uh, let's let's go through these. Six reasons of why Zodiac sticks with me and then you can reflect or <laughs> talk about these things as well. So Reason number one. Okay, let's go. Here we go. Rob's list of six things that make this movie worth watching. What's your first reason? Okay, reason number one is it immerses you in a world. Okay. Um, Just the first shots in this movie, which are like in a suburban neighborhood, uh-huh. and the fireworks are going on, yeah. and it's just like the shots are these like 1960s cars and that sort of thing, and it just... I feel like I am in the 60s. Like, there's lots of movies that take place in the 60s. There are even movies that are made in the 60s. Yeah. But there's nothing that just immerses me of, like, suburban San Francisco culture, Northern California. Yeah. That world like this movie. Like, I feel like I'm just transported there. And that that shot, you are in the driver's seat of the car that's driving down the road, and you are in the literal perspective of the first murder victim. That's a great point. I didn't even think of it exactly like that, but that's right. It's like, we're going to like make you feel this world. And I think like historically, what's so interesting about this film is, or actually this time period is, okay, it's 1968. So we're coming out of the sixties, which is 63 is when JFK gets assassinated. It's the first kind of like, you know, ripple that comes across the darkness. And then it was like the slap in the face to America out of the, idyllic 50s where everything is kind of like perfect in the American dream with the white picket fence the 60s was like a huge slap in the face exactly because we win World War II white picket fences suburbs you know squeaky clean obviously there's real problems right but like collectively as a country we hadn't faced darkness uh, in a way of like coming onto our own soil for quite a long time you know it was like Darkness in a broad corporate sense was always overseas. It was always in a war, that sort of stuff, pretty much post-Civil War. And so then, like, Zodiac happens in 68. Mm -hmm. And what it is the beginning of is evil serial killer, which is, it's not America's first serial killer. There were many before. But there was never a serial killer that's happening in front of the media where it's like the coverage and the terror is kind of gripping a whole city and really a whole country. Yeah. And I think that's what this movie is about is it's kind of the end of innocence. And when terror comes and like grips the whole place and what it does and what that terror individually does to a city and even more so does to an individual. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about like 
50s to 60s like I think like the 50s fear that progressed over, over the next 40 years but was like the fear is outside the country right like the fear is Russia right you've got McCarthyism right. and the fear is communism which isn't here and if it is then we're gonna root it out and get rid of it right, right. Um, but like there was this safe haven of uh, America and if there was a threat it was outside and Zodiac is like no 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 like I'm right here yeah you know I'm 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 hanging out right next door and you don't know who I am. It's also interesting to me that like David Fincher works so hard in this immersing in the world to like recreate scenes, right? Yeah, so I've heard about this. I, I was reading this article and like one of the murders that happens right by a lake, he actually goes and he's a surviving victim. And so he survives the murder, but someone else like the woman next to him is murdered. And he actually takes Fincher to the lake and so Fincher makes sure to shoot this exact same scene at the same lake at the same time in the same place and so Fincher is just working so hard to re- meticulously recreate every detail of what was happening here and yeah. and you feel it in the film you feel like oh that like even films that are made in the 60s it's like okay I'm on a Hollywood set you know it's like kind of fun or interesting or whatever else. Bonnie and Clyde is a great film, but it doesn't like give me a sense of the Mm sixties in a way that this film right here does, you know, yeah, this film Zodiac kind of came out right around the same time as Mad Men, interestingly. And so it's like, Oh uh, wow. Yeah. You know, that same sort of world where it's like, we're going to really recreate like what's happening in the sixties and what's going on. Uh, it, it does that. So that's kind of my reason. Number one is it immerses you in the world. Reason number two is performances. These are there are three actors who I adore, who, mm-hmm. which is, you know, Mark Ruffalo, Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr., who are just like throwing 100 miles per hour. Each one of them. I think it may be like, if not the best performance of each of their careers, it's mm-hmm. right there. Oh, absolutely. So this is 2007, right? Yes. So this is pre Iron Man. Yeah, this is one year before Iron Man. One year before Iron Man. So this is a pre-Iron Man Robert Downey Jr. So no one was looking at him as like the guy right now or I think in 20... 2005. 2000, so in 2017, he was the most paid Hollywood actor yes. in the world. Um, this is 2007 where he's still largely blacklisted. Yeah. In 2005, the reason I re- mentioned that is because... Kiss Kiss Bang Bang comes out. I believe it's that year. Some of these movies I give off the top of my head. You're looking at me right now. I'm not looking at show notes. I'm not looking it up. (laughs) And so you guys can always correct me. But I think 2005 is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang right around there. And so that's kind of the movie that makes his comeback. And then 2007, he stars in Zodiac. And so, again, it's one year before Iron Man. But I think it's a great fork in the road because his performance is so good. It is an Oscar-worthy performance. And he hasn't given a performance like this sense and these performances Robert Downey Jr. Mark Ruffalo Jake Gyllenhaal I think they really shine in a in a way that is I think the way that they structure their performances in this movie is really interesting and I think this goes back to David Fincher's non-interest in a three-act structure in the way that he creates this movie this movie is almost three movies back to back this movie could be kind of like a three-part miniseries, with the first one being Robert Downey Jr., yes. the second act being Mark Ruffalo, and the third act being Jake Gyllenhaal. Absolutely. When you see the movie 
poster for this movie, you think, oh, this is the Jake Gyllenhaal movie with some supporting characters. And largely by the end, it does become the Jake Gyllenhaal movie. But Jake Gyllenhaal is a supporting character for the first hour plus of he's this movie. He's literally in the conference room, kind of like, just kind of creeping by the door. Like he has, right. he's driving none of the action. He has nothing to say, nothing to do really. Right. And Robert Downey Jr. kind of like attacks him at one point. Like, what are you doing about this? Right. Let me ask you this. Who gives the best performance in the movie? If you, if you have one Oscar, you're like, okay, I can only hand out one Oscar for this movie. Who gives out the best performance? It's either Robert Downey Jr. or Jake Gyllenhaal. When they're going head-to-head, Robert Downey Jr. is giving a much better performance in the first act of, uh, of this movie, but it's because it's his movie. Yes. But then by the time you get to the third act and... Robert Downey Jr.'s character, Paul Avery, has tapped out. The Mark Ruffalo character has tapped out. It's just Jake Gyllenhaal. Then Jake Gyllenhaal is giving this much more layered performance than he was in the beginning of the movie because it's his movie now. Yeah. Um, and so I would say one of the two of them, I might lean Jake Gyllenhaal because I think he becomes the heart of the movie at the end. But, you know, uh, it's a it, it's a coin flip for me. Depending on the day, I could probably give a different answer for each one of them. Sure. The first thing that comes to mind, actually, to me, interestingly enough, is Mark Ruffalo gives the best performance in the movie. And oh, uh, that was not what I was expecting you to say. And part of the reason I think so is because it, it's such an interesting performance because he's playing Dave Toski, who is like this iconic San Francisco detective. Mm-hmm. Dirty Harry was modeled after him. Steve McQueen plays, I forget what movie it is, but Steve McQueen is modeled after him as well. They're even talking about this in the movie. So he's this kind of iconic, tough guy detective. But he, what Fincher does is he swings it the other way. He does not show a super cool t- cop, a super cool tough guy. He's a guy who likes animal crackers, this sort of thing. But he plays this kind of like quiet desperation, you know, like... Hall and Robert Downey Jr. very much have this, like, manic desperation to them. Yes. Like, I have to find it. Like, he's, you know, Downey Jr. just, like, unravels. Paul Avery just kind of unravels by the end of the movie. And he's right. literally just kind of, like, come to nothing. Jake Hall does it. He gets really manic and whatever else. But I think Ruffalo holds this movie together because he has this, like, almost apathy or like you know what it is what it is that sort of thing but he still plays these little notes that shows i care so much right it's driving me crazy that i can't catch this guy yeah yeah, yeah. it's not fair and it's not right and so his quiet desperation i think is such a compliment to the other two guys that's a really good point that's that's really interesting and you have to have all of those layers in a movie and in a more traditional movie all three of these men would be sharing the screen yeah i think there's only one no but there's a couple scenes towards the end where ruffalo and gyllenhaal are are talking together once they start kind of doing the investigation but i remember the movie theater scene where jake gyllenhaal first approaches mark ruffalo yeah um when they're watching dirty harry and they both step out in in the lobby and i thought Oh my God, this is the first time these two actors have been in the same scene, and this movie's an hour and a half or more in. Yeah, Ruffalo doesn't appear until a half hour into the movie. Like, he's not even there, you know? It's like, right. And he doesn't meet Jake Gyllenhaal until after the investigation is pretty much done. Right. Right? It, you're going into the third act of the movie, basically, by, by the time that the two even meet. So the structure of this movie really is these three men largely doing their own thing. Which is, it, it, it's this, like, 
there almost isn't a central protagonist in the structure of, 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 of this movie, which I think is really interesting. Fincher is telling the story of this time, not the story of a hero, which yes. he's much more interested in. And I think it's something that probably threw me off the first time that I, I watched it. But I think it's a really fascinating redirect of what this kind of movie normally is, which is about a detective, the hero detective, or maybe sometimes about like the crazy killer. And this movie is about neither of those things. Okay, so number three on my list is use of violence. Okay. Let me ask you this. How many murders do you think you've seen on screen in your life? I don't even want to, like, so many. Like, thousands probably, right? Thousands, maybe tens of thousands, right? It's just, it's so many. Like, it probably, like, for me, I'm like, it probably starts with, like, stormtroopers and Star Wars. Oh, sure. Do stormtroopers like, get many, murdered? Do they actually die or do they just kind of like sit there and burn? If if we're talking <laughs> if, if we're talking about like quote war deaths as as well, if we're just like some yeah, I mean cuz yeah, stormtroopers or any any number, I mean yeah, tens of thousands, right? Yeah. If, if for, for including war zones, yeah, just an unbelievable amount. Cuz like as a child I'm like okay, like Spoiler alert, but I'm like all in on Star Wars. Like I love Star Wars deeply. <laughs> I don't know why it's a spoiler what alert a, there. What a surprise. <laughs> Rob Stennett, you oh, like wow. Star Wars? Rob brings Star Wars into the Zodiac podcast. Like, but but seriously, Star Wars is like ground zero for like my movie watching. And so it's just like, okay, Luke Skywalker and Han Solo, they have something called a laser gun, and that laser gun like ends the life of stormtroopers. And like that's kind of where it started for me. So my point is thousands of murders on screen right maybe tens of thousands um i've never seen them quite like the ones in zodiac Mm -hmm. and the ones in zodiac feel more real than any other movie why do you think that is i think it's because movie deaths are cinematic movie deaths are like in a horror movie like we talked about before it's like the killer kind of appears out of nowhere Uh and then boat goes and like takes a chainsaw or something like that or it's an action movie where a dude's like taking two guns out and they're shooting back and forth and it's john mcclain and die hard right where he's like blowing the bad guys away and that yeah. sort of thing in this movie it's not cinematic at all the very first kill in this movie is like uh, i don't want to say kill that's like a horror movie word i want to say murder right. to give it dignity because these are real people these are real stories with grieving families and and fincher only included the zodiac murders that had surviving victims who were able to relay what happened so the murders where it was a a single person there were no one survived are not included in 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 this movie like the cab driver it was a single murder but they don't show it really from inside the cab that entire scene is basically filmed from the witness perspective correct of of the window so he's he's only using details that are confirmed by eyewitness testimony which is fascinating way to make a movie yeah it just shows how much he cares so in that first scene which mm-hmm. is at lover's lane okay this kind of couple that's there and then all of a sudden the car comes up and drives behind them and again it's more thriller which is dread than horror which is jump scare mm-hmm. but a car's like behind them and then all of a sudden it like drives off mm-hmm. and then a minute later it like turns around and drives back and have you ever been somewhere like late at night where a car drives up or something like that and it just sure. This, like, that's what this feels like. I was like, oh, this is how it happens in real life. That's what it felt like watching this movie. Like, this is how it really happens. And so that car turns around, drives off, and then a guy just gets out and then gets out of the car. And they're like, what's happening? And then he, like, takes his flashlight, like, he's a police officer. And then he kills these, like, 
one of the kids he maims and the girl he kills. Right. And um, all those details just felt like so much more real. It's not cool. It's not sexy. It's not cinematic. The score isn't, you know, going up or anything else like that. It's just this kind of raw, clumsy murder. Mm-hmm. And because of that, it felt so much more visceral. It felt so much more dark. I was actually like, oh, should I even be watching this? Can I watch this? You know, it's like yeah, yeah. that heavy and dark. But I think it's important because of the meaning of the movie, because it's like, hey, the, this is something that really happened. And he recreated, even there's a moment where the kid gets shot and then he climbs back over his seat. And that's actually what happened in the story. And right. so like all those little details are so much there where it's like, hey, this is something that really happened. Evil really came. And we have to make sense of this evil that struck. Right. There's that scene, and then there's the other scene that happens by um, Lake Berryessa, where the two victims are killed in the middle of the day. And to me, that was the scene in the movie when it comes to like a realistic murder that super stuck with me. There's two moments in that that I feel like I've not necessarily lived, but were so not cinematic and were so what happens in the real world, I think, which is when... He's first the the killer is first approaching, right? He's, uh-huh. It's a little weird, right? It's it feels like a little off. And the woman um says, like, hey, we're not alone. And the the man who's there says, like, yeah, it's a public beach. Um, and you as a movie audience know like this is a murder movie. Right. Right? Like you should be scared right now. But I thought like that exchange, I was like, I've had that exchange with my wife. I thought the same thing. I was like, how many times have I been in a situation where my yeah. wife or a friend or someone's like, Oh, this is creepy, something's off, and you're like, No, it's fine. Yeah, it's that's fine. what happens so much more like in a murder movie, in a horror movie, we're like, why are people in horror movies right. so stupid? You know, like that's one of the scary movie, all sorts of, you know, parodies have been made about that of like people in horror movies are stupid. Yeah. But they're only stupid because they're in a horror movie and they don't know it. Right. But in real life, when something a little creepy or a little off happens, when you hear a noise at night, for the most part, you're just like, it's fine. Go back to bed. We're fine. Right. Because you, I, I think our fear is like, I don't want to be the lunatic. Right. That's like, ah, there's this guy here. And the guy's like, I'm walking my dog. Right. right. Like, you don't want to be that person who's who looks crazy. Yeah. And so our at least my gut reaction is is, is to be like, I'm misunderstanding this situation. Yeah. Right. My fear response is my problem. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which, if you're not in a horror movie, makes sense. So that's like the first element that I was like, oh, this is real. It's the middle of the day. And then when the man does walk up and he's bag on his head and he has a gun in a in a movie like I, I, I remember thinking like, why doesn't why are they allowing themselves to be tied up? Right. Right. Like they're so compliant to this murderer who's about to murder them. Because what do you do when someone has a gun in your face in a movie? What do you do? You are a hero you lunge at the gun right eventually you like distract him and lunge at the gun like that's like how many times have you seen that right in a film uh we talked about it in stranger things exactly lucas does it to jason in 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 the attic and you're like yeah like you don't take that lying down someone's gonna murder your wife or or girlfriend like you don't you don't let yourself get tied up i was watching the movie last night and i thought like weirdly enough i was like i've been in a similar situation whoa And if you've ever actually had a gun pulled on you, the feeling of having a barrel pointed at you is 
is terrifying. Like it's there, there, there is no like, oh, if I lunge to the left and of like, oh, I just have to like move fast enough. Like you don't move faster than a finger pulling a trigger and a bullet like no one does. And you know that as soon as there's a gun pointed at you. And so the idea of just being compliant and trying to deescalate the situation it is so normal. And so the way that Fincher creates the scene, which, again, is how it happened, because there was a surviving victim who said this is what happened. Um, but like that that fear of just being compliant yep. in order to try to deescalate, which feels stupid in a movie, is the re- so much of the reality of what fear I think I know the one time that someone pointed a gun at me was certainly what I did. You're so terrified. In it's a so terrifying like that. You're not thinking like, OK. And what I need to do now is distract him. Like, you're just like, is this the last moment of my life? Right. And, again, and how do I make sure that this isn't the last moment of, of my life? Yeah. When we, we've talked a little bit about the structure of this movie, but what's so fascinating about it is it begins with kind of like one, two, three murders. Like, mm-hmm. in the last, probably first 30, 40 minutes, it's like boom, 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 boom. Right. And then that's it. Yep. It's another, <laughs> you're on board for another two hours where no one gets killed. And I think that's why you were so frustrated. This movie is like, (laughs) it's like, Oh my gosh, this is not science of the lambs. It doesn't have those continual adrenaline hits. It's just kind of these murders happened. And then we got to make sense of it all. But what grounds this movie so much is those murders, especially the, those two scenes we're talking about are so awful and visceral and real that they just stick with you. And it roots it in something which is like, we have to make sense of what this evil is. Totally. What is your fourth reason that um, you love this movie? My fourth reason is just it's this complex story that's 20 years in the making. What do you mean by that? Uh, I think what's fascinating about this is like most movies are set in a time period, except for like biopics, which biopics are normally horrible because they're this long like, you know, <laughs> hey, this... This is Johnny Cash's. Actually, I like Walk the Line. So this is like a bad example. It's the first one that came to mind. But like, oh, this is him as a kid. And this is him when he first gets married. And this is him when his marriage falls apart. And like, it just kind of shows. It's like a sequence of events. Yeah, it's like snapshots through a life. And and it's not a story, right? And so like most movies that are a long time in the making are not that. And like we in our Lord of the Rings episode, we talked a little bit about the difference between a show and a movie. Uh And honestly, in some ways, the Zodiac or Zodiac movie plays much more like a TV show. It's like a series of it's episodic and vignettes, but it's still put together in this tight package where it's 20 years, but all focused on one story. Right. And I just think there's nothing else like it that is so broad and sweeping, but also like laser locked and focused. And so I think like, I think all the president's men is one of the like movies that this Zodiac is very much in conversation with because Mm -hmm. it's like this journalism movie, like these two journalists who are trying to figure out the Watergate scandal, Nixon and what happened. But the fact that it's so complex, so layered, you know, like it has slugs, like almost like screenplay slug lines, which is like uh, in courier font. It says, hey, this is the location we are at. And then it's like four hours later or two weeks later, or 18 months later, and they're just moving you through time in such a like fascinating way. Right, and it's really quick, and I think that's why I mentioned earlier, like the momentum of this movie is odd. Yeah, it has a three-act structure-ish. Ish? But I'd be so interested to see, like, actually, maybe even spend time myself to like break down like the structure, but I'm like, this is not structured like Save the Cat. This is no. not structured like 
Robert McKee or Sid Field. It, it, it does break all these structural things. Mm-hmm. And usually when you do that, you are messing with forces of nature and it doesn't work. And in fact, maybe arguably it didn't work because it turned audiences off sure. so much because it's not a movie movie, right? It doesn't yeah. work like a screenplay structure. But in my opinion, I'm like, he just nailed this and did something really complex. He did do something really complex. And talking about act structure, just for, I'm going to keep this to 30 seconds because this is so in the weed and so inside baseball. But we've come to make movies in a way in which each act does a certain thing for the movie. We set up the world, we build the action, we turn the action, we send it off in a new direction and we conclude it, right? That's the kind of act structure we're used to following. Um, and if you break away from that and get into just what an act of a story is, it can be broken down into the idea of like, what is the main dramatic question? And you answer it yes or no, right? Which this movie is doing. I think Fincher does really well, which does hold his, his movies together is he'll have all these scenes that are building toward a moment, right? Like does Paul Avery is the beginning is like, does the Chronicle figure out who this guy is right right does paul avery is he successful and by the end of that act the answer is nope and then we kind of move on to dave toski's investigation right and the and ultimately i think the question there is is dave toski successful the answer is nope they sent so many of the of the dramatic questions in this movie are answered by no is this the killer nope is this the killer nope right is this the killer maybe but nope <laughs> you know, and so I think that that is leaving you with a different emotion than you expect going in. And that 20 years in the making is part of the madness of this movie. Is yes. You're like, can they just find this guy? Right. Madness is such a great word to describe the feeling of both the characters as well as maybe even the audience. And this like black hole that is the Zodiac, which is like even now, like there's debates and there's podcasts and there's follow up stories about like what happened and what is it. And now it's like you know, 50 years in the making this story where it's like, we're still kind of in this black hole of like, where, who is this guy? What happened? What do we make sense of it? Yeah. And like the final madness of even in the movie. And I think in real life for many of these, these people and people who have followed this investigation really closely of when they finally have enough evidence to really like go after the one guy that they have enough evidence of, he dies. Yeah. It's maddening that they can't find closure. There is no closure at almost any step in this movie. And I think as an audience, that is maddening because you want that catharsis. One well, and to get in the mystery really quick in 2020, did you read this? There was actually DNA testing done about Arthur Lee Allen that like rules him out, but it rules him out based on like the glove and the taxi cab, which some people think like the taxi cab is in a Zodiac murder. So sure. even like him being ruled out is like problematic and this is 2020 you know like right. this is like long long after his death long long after like many of the peop- actors or many of the characters in this movie have died you know right what's your fifth reason that you love this movie so much and think it's important before i give my fifth reason i have to admit that like it's really hard for me to not be in like normal meaning of the movie structure i'm like oh we should be talking about like most meaningful scene and that sort of stuff but i think like that's <laughs> maybe this podcast experience is part of what zodiac is which is like <laughs> you just have to go like on a crazy journey and so number five is i wrote down personal story because it's a personal story for david fincher okay jake gyllenhaal has these you know 
kids get a as kids. Yeah. And so the kids are like, there's this one scene where the kids are like, put stuff on the cork board and trying to help figure out who the Zodiac murderer is. And they're like, mm-hmm. who are you working with on this? And he's like, I've got my own private team and it's really his kids. Yeah, like, he's like my associates <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> but as I was watching this movie last night, what stuck out to me is I was like, oh, Fincher is one of those children at the table there sure. because this is the boogeyman story that Fincher grew up with was like the this guy who's this great American filmmaker who talks about like death and violence and that sort of stuff and the fear of those things that was rooted in like as a child in San Francisco learning about the Zodiac killer mm-hmm. and so I think the fact that like this was his great boogeyman and the fact that Dirty Harry was made and he was like this is not what the Zodiac killer is that's not really what's going on there yeah. Dave Tashi like walks out of the screening of the Zodiac, or sorry, walks out of the screening of Dirty Harry because he's so disgusted by it because Dirty Harry goes, he finds the bad guy, he's like, are you feeling lucky punk? And he shoots him dead. You know, like that's what Dirty Harry does and that's what makes us feel good about the closure. And Toshi's like, I've got to wait nine months just to get a search warrant in the house of the guy who I know is the killer. It's so crystal clear. And so his reality versus like the Hollywood reality is so much there. And so Fincher making it so personal where it's like, this is my great boogeyman. And so he's almost like a little bit of each one of these characters as well, which is like, I'm going to obsessively try to figure out who this guy is. And maybe much like Robert Graysmith, I'm going to recreate this murderer and I'm going to recreate this story and put it all together. And maybe as me doing this, I'm going to like unveil the Zodiac killer. Uh, I mean, I, I know the scene with like the kids is a really interesting window into like f- how Fincher experienced it in real time, sort of when he, he was young. Are there any other scenes in in the movie that feel like Fincher personally putting himself sort of in into the movie? I mean, I think just childhood, right? There's many scenes in the movie where, like, the, on the news, they're talking about the Zodiac Killer, and then he turns the channel, right? Media is so important in this movie, bro. Mm-hmm. Media is such a part of this movie, and the fact that, like, these murders not just happen, but are covered and debated, and everyone in America becomes a detective, and everyone in America becomes a victim. Like, that's part of what this film is about as well, and these children kind of bring that to life. Yeah, because what's ultimately at stake? What's the biggest stake in the movie? The school bus, like the Zodiac yeah. killer is going to come after school bus and start killing children. And that's right. the threat that he makes. And so that threat is kind of grips all these parents and even more so it grips children. And so I think Fincher himself is wrestling with this fear of what this person who he never met meant to him and meant to his life. Wow. That's super cool. All right, here we go. What's number six? Number six is my meaning of the movie, and maybe I can just say it now, which is like, this film is about when something horrible happens in your life, and then the world just kind of moves on. And so, like, I've had two situations in my life where it's like, it was a big deal, it was covered by the media, and there's a big media circus, and like, talk shows are talking about it. Like, not me personally, but something that much like a Robert Graysmith or like a Dave Tashi that I was really adjacent to. That was like a big deal. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone's into it. And then suddenly the world moves on. And then everyone's like, oh, what's the next news story? And what's the next thing? And it's like, oh, I haven't moved on from this. I'm still wrestling it to the ground. And it's still eating at me. And it's still keeping me up at night. And I'm still trying to make sense of it. Right. And so like many of the characters in this movie by the end are just kind of like, 
why are you not over this and that sort of thing? Like, why are you stuck in the past of this traumatic event? Mm-hmm. Like for people who are really close to the trauma, it's like you don't get to move on to the next news story. Sure. You don't get to move on to the next thing, which again, I think is why this movie being 22 years in the making is so important because for some of us, you have an experience that's so traumatic that you don't get to move on from and it kind of defines you and defines your life. And I've never had a movie that like crystallizes that idea to me quite like this one. That's so interesting. Um, and that idea of like, not only everyone else m- moves on and you can't move on. I feel like w- when you have a trauma that you're close to and then it becomes public, there is something that is um, validating. It, it can be exposing as, as well. And I, but I think there can be something validating about everyone caring about this trauma and that it, it when it becomes a big deal you go yeah this is a big deal and there is there's a public validation of the the horribleness of this thing yeah. right that you've experienced but then when everyone else moves on it rips that validation away and you're not only are, are you left to deal with it alone if you've been left to deal with it alone the whole time you'd have a box for it but your initial box when it is it is public is to deal with it around all these other people who care and then when they stop caring and you still have to deal with it it's it rips that validation out which i think is sort of like a second trauma which you see with a lot of these these characters i would say each of those three three main characters have their 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 moment where they're still actively going in and 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 someone is like you're too far in in this. Like, you shouldn't care as much. This shouldn't matter to you. Well, exactly. This is a movie ultimately about three lives being destroyed. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it's really a movie it starts with Paul Avery, who is there, and he's the center of the story and kind of becomes cool. And then next thing he knows, he gets too close and the Zodiac's coming after him. And that kind of fear and obsession drives him to become an alcoholic, to become a drug addict. And eventually, like, his life never recovers from that and then you know dave toski as well like actually goes and becomes so obsessed with it that he gets um he starts writing like letters about this sort of thing and and i don't quite understand what happened with that by the way you know he he wrote into the paper anonymously um because like like you said uh the Dirty Harry movies and stuff are sort of based on him, and so he he became somewhat of a of a hero character in 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 the Chronicle and in San Francisco. And I think there was a time in which, um, like I, I sort of said, he was being publicly validated for his work. Yes. And when the paper moved on, there was a moment, and this and this happened in in, in real life, in which he I think anonymously wrote in and said like, "I miss the coverage of Dave Toski. That guy was great." But then when that came out, that he had done that the fact that he was writing letters to the paper zodiac writing writing letters to the paper it's too close it's too weird and he got pulled off the case yeah he gets pulled off the case and And that kind of ruins your career when like you like that's awful like you know right like that loses the public trust if you're a cop or a journalist or something when it when you are putting yourself above the work you lose the public trust and and again like ruffalo plays it so well where it's like Calls the house, calls June Diane Rayfield. You listen to How Did This Get Made? Have you yeah. Heard? So the wife is the woman in How Did This Get Made? I, I know. <laughs> she's, she's like a comic. She's in like New Girl and Seth Rogen movies. I was like, how is she in this? I was like, this is such a drama. And she is like almost a straight comedian. Yeah. And she, she plays it straight. And she's the wife who's always like, 
getting you know tangled up in the cords when the phone calls happen late at night. By the way, phone phones ringing like I don't know how many phone rings there are in this movie, but I think that's part of what I love about it is like the sound of typewriters, the sound of phone ringing. Mm-hmm. Like that's almost the score of sure. this movie. So anyway, going going off the rails, but yeah. So <laughs> Ruffalo plays it so well, where she's on the phone with him, and then he just takes the phone there and he just hangs it up because he's so ashamed. He's like, "How did this thing get the best of me?" Yeah, and it's just so heavy. And so that's kind of the moment, like that's the end of him chasing this thing, and he kind of gotten validated. And then Gray Smith himself like lost his marriage, and this literally happened to him. Yeah. He became so obsessed with writing about this, with chasing this thing down, that he kind of became a bad father and bad husband because this thing took a hold of his life. One of the interesting things with that that I feel like leaves it open-ended and and makes it hurt more and not feel cathartic, um, which is maybe a big word, but (laughs) this this idea of like going through the pain and then feeling better afterwards is I don't think the movie gives you that either. Each of these characters have this moment in which they've done something maybe wrong or they've made the wrong choices to the hero, which all of your heroes has, right? Like To have a good hero, you have to have, they have to have a weakness and that weakness gets the better of them and then they have to fix it, right? And um, we don't get that with Dave Toski or with, with Paul Avery, right? Like their weakness gets the better of them and then the movie moves on. Right. Like we we don't get to really see Ruffalo sit there and process through like that was stupid. I shouldn't have done. That. It's just the phone hanging up scene. That's that's all you get. It's it's brief and it's like sad and the movie moves on. And so I think like Fincher is pushing you through like he's not giving you the conclusion either that anyone that the victims got. We see um jimmy simpson uh at at the end is one of the the older version of um mike mayhew and like no one gets closure from the zodiac and that's kind of the point right there is no closure and that's the madness of it right it it is what all these true crime podcasts is but you feel it in such a deep way in this story it does give one kind of clever moment of closure which is chloe zavini asks gray smith she's like what will it take for this to be over. Yes. Like, when does it end? You know, he's, yeah. he's lost his marriage, that sort of stuff. And he's like, she's like, when will this be over? When will it be enough? And he's like, don't ask me that. And she's like, no, seriously, when will it be enough? And he says, I have to stand there and look in the Zodiac's eyes and know that it's him. And that's when it'll be enough for me. And then there becomes a scene in 1983. And this actually really happened uh-huh. where he goes to an Ace Hardware store and finds the Zodiac, finds, right. well, finds Arthur Lee Allen, who right. may or may not be the Zodiac, sure. and kind of looks him eye to eye. It's staged a little bit differently. He was actually like following him in a car and following him inside. But the similar like sort of moment happened where they look eye to eye. Uh-huh. And that was this moment where he became face to face with the evil. And at least for him was like, I know you did this. Right. You didn't get away with it with me. And I have to defeat. That's part of what this movie's about is like defeating evil. And sometimes we can't. And what do we do when we can't defeat evil? Right. What is what is enough? What is looking in the eye of of, of evil? And is that, you know, like what what is your victory when you can't beat it in the way that Hollywood would say you can? In culture, we talk about the Hollywood ending. And oftentimes that's like a pejorative for something that's overly sentimental or overly romantic. Right. Or um, and this does not have a Hollywood ending a, a, at all. And I think it's very much in conversation with that of like, what does closure look like in real life? Because most deeply traumatic events, you really struggle to find closure for any traumatic events that that, that, that could happen in, in your life. And how do you make sense of that? And Jake Gyllenhaal's character 
is really the only one that is able to find that. I think this movie's a really good coin flip to Jojo Rabbit, interestingly enough, because sure. Jojo Rabbit says darkness is out there. There's such darkness and heaviness, but light and goodness is ultimately going to break through. And Zodiac says evil is coming. And sometimes no matter how much you try, no matter how much you want it, you're not going to be able to defeat evil. And part of me thinks both of those things are true or at right. least understands and has felt both of those emotions as well. And so I think that's what a good film is, right? Like a good film is ultimately an argument about an idea about the human experience. And both these films kind of give their own thesis and essay of how we deal with darkness. Okay, lightning round, Andrew. Who's your most meaningful character? Most meaningful character, I think Jake Gyllenhaal, because um, I think at the end of the day, he is sort of the protagonist of the movies. But I think his um, obsession, his the, the way that he becomes uh, obsessed feels um, personal to me. Um, and this is something that you don't need to be obsessed about. Everyone else, it's their job. He's the only one who it is not his job, right? He is a cartoonist. The first guy is the crime reporter. The second guy is the police detective assigned to it. He is a cartoonist, right? He has no real business being around it, but he has to figure out for himself when it's not your job and you can't hang it up. Yeah, he, I mean, I, that would be my same answer that he's the most meaningful character, but I, I, part of me wants to just shout out like a, list of like anthony edwards is in this movie by the way yeah goose, goose baby goose from maverick <laughs> er anthony edwards i forgot that he was in this and then he and then he walked in and i was like it's goose yeah. <laughs> he's, he's so great uh john carroll lynch who plays yes. arthur lee allen like he is such a like one of my favorite character actors of all time between zodiac fargo and the founder like those three movies which i adore he's awesome in it and there and then I think Robert Downey Jr., like not enough can be said where it's like he's so funny in this movie that desperately needs laughs. Yeah, that desperately needs energy and eccentricity. And he just brings that in a way where like Ruffalo and Hall are both kind of crazy. And so it's like dark and heavy, but he's kind of playful and fun and like making jokes and still doing Robert Downey Jr. stuff. Right. But there's also a weight to it as well, which, again, I just feel like a sadness with him of like a career that we could have got. Sure. And I think that's just so important in a, a, a movie to be able, even if this is a study of three obsessive characters, it's three obsessive characters who are characterized as obsessive very differently. And I, I don't know these men in, in real life and if their characterizations are, you know, really pre presenting who these people were in, in real life. But just as like a, a storyteller, and we talked about this a little bit in our Lord of the Rings episode of sort of all of our elf protagonists having sort of the same demeanor, how maybe that can drag things down a little bit. These three obsessive people all obsess very differently, and that keeps it like fresh and interesting. Uh, what about most meaningful scene? You got one? Most meaningful scene for me, I think my most meaningful scene is the one by the lake. But I think this movie has another movie or has a, another scene that is um, talking about fear and dread, which is like the one thriller horror scene in the movie, which is the one in the basement. Do you remember the scene I'm it's talking an amazing about? Amazing scene, such a good scene. Probably my favorite scene in the movie. Why is that? Uh, I just think because it's so frightening. Because all of a sudden it was like he's chasing this idea of the Zodiac, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I came face to face with the Zodiac, and I didn't. I don't want to be this close to the sun. And so for the 
there's only about five minutes where you like leave a thriller and you're in a straight up horror movie and the way it plays and it, un, you know, it pays off all this information where he's like, Oh, I have a basement. And then like, there's an earlier line, like an hour and a half ago where they're like, nobody has a basement in California. And so it plays that off where he's like, he's like, no, this is Rick Marshall's handwriting. And he's like, no, Mr. Graysmith, it's my handwriting. And so all these things where all of a sudden you're like, Oh my gosh, that's a, that's the killer. And yeah. you realize Graysmith is like, I wanted to find the Zodiac Killer, but I didn't want the Zodiac Killer to find me. Uh, it just flips it on its head, and it's so beautiful. Totally. I think what really hit me this time around while watching it was that, like, the one Hollywood scary movie scene in in this movie, there's, like, even, like, a jump scare where, like, at the end where the guy, like, shows up by the door after, like, the door is locked. It reminds me so much of Get Out. Like, it's very clearly shot and created like okay this is a hollywood movie scary movie scene immediately after the scene it's very clear it's not this man right but it's we we see how the uh, obsession and getting too close to the sun suddenly creates this movie fear within almost jake gyllenhaal's Hall's head right yes absolutely my most meaningful scene the scene that i could watch like a thousand times is the scene where he goes and knocks on Tashi's door like late at night after he's been disgraced, everything else like that, and they end up in a diner. And just seeing Robert Graysmith wield all this information that he has to the detective and the way that uh, Ruffalo's just like, I'm not impressed, even though he's so impressed that like, wow, (laughs) a citizen just went and found all this stuff. And then this line in the movie that I love where Jake Gyllenhaal asks him, he's like, well, what do you really think happened? He's like, I'm not asking you as a cop. I'm just asking you as a man, what really happened? And then his response is, but I am a cop. And so he's like, I can't play this game that you're playing. Sure. The way that you attack this information, the way that you're doing this, I can't do this same sort of thing. I have to be a cop and a cop's rooted in evidence where you're just kind of rooted in story. And so just seeing these two men like wrestle over these same facts, uh-huh. I just think it's so thrilling. Yeah. And, and and you see that he's been burned by the moment in his life where he like did the not cop thing where he wanted to be part of the story and he's not willing to go there again, which I think you're right. That scene, the Mark Ruffalo aspect of that scene, which he is the one who's more he's less manic. He's less interesting in, in that scene. He's pulling back. Right. And he's acting like he's not impressed. It's how important it is to have incredibly strong actors do those roles that are maybe a little bit more unsung like for, for for me of the three he's the least interesting of the three kind of protagonists but like you need that you need this guy that is in in order to get these scenes to work and not be cartoonish and to feel like they're rooted in reality because mark ruffalo is really how most of us would behave yeah and th- i mean that scene is just actor director and script just working all together mm-hmm. firing at all cylinders doing something powerful all right andrew we've yeah. talked around it for a long time mm-hmm here we are. What's your meaning of the movie? I think this movie is about obsession. I think this the, the, this movie is, is about how ob- obsession can upend y- y- your life and how it, it ultimately does not lead to the conclusion that you think it will emotionally. I think there's so many stories that we love that are about solving the puzzle and the rush that you get from that whether it's a whodunit or literally doing a puzzle right like coming to the conclusion of a thing provides so much like adrenaline or happiness right and most things in life don't have that conclusion 
right? The, 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 there isn't the happy ending to so many things in life. It just kind of keeps going. Right. And um, if we become obsessed with certain things in our life, it's it's very hard to find happiness through obsession. Was an obsessive movie made by an obsessive filmmaker? Like he <laughs> destroyed Jake Gyllenhaal. Like Jake Gyllenhaal, like has never been the same from this movie. He'd make him take a single line of dialogue like a hundred times, like just kind of like whittled him down to its core. And so I think that's what's so interesting is this is a film about the dangers of obsession from a filmmaker like obsessed with obsession for, for for me that is what this this movie is about is the is the psychological toll of obsession and where it ultimately leads especially when that thing i guess concerns darkness and the parts of life that we don't understand which fincher is incredibly concerned about so for you what's the meaning of the movie we've talked so much about it what if we could sort of dial this in for you like straight down the barrel What's the meaning of Zodiac for you? I think the meaning of this movie is America or maybe in the world's fascination with serial killers and violence and what that is in movies versus what it is in real life. Mm. What it is when it's played out in the media versus what it is when it's played out in someone's personal life. Mm -hmm. And I think in movies, it's like creepy and scary and whatever else. But here it's like, no, it's dark and traumatic and heavy and it's too much and we need to give it more reverence we need to give it more respect that's part of what this movie is about was like this is his grand case of like i want to set the record straight on what this thing actually is and even the victims themselves said fincher was the right filmmaker to tell this story because he had the respect he wasn't going to hollywoodize this movie he was going to tell a real authentic honest story of what this was which is not lighthearted and it's not cool and it's not sexy and it's not scary it's just evil intersecting with someone who is totally unsuspecting and that taking a toll on the life and then once you try to chase that evil down it takes a toll on your life as well mm -hmm. and so this talking about serial killers which is this weird awareness that we have right serial killers didn't exist in the mass conscious before 50 60 years ago so throughout most of human history this wasn't a thing. And all of a sudden, because of mass media, it's here and we have to make sense of it. And this is the movie that I think does the best case of anything that's come before or since of making sense of that phenomenon. I love it. Wow. That's a great answer. This is I'm so, I'm so glad that you pushed for this movie and that we got to go see it together the, uh, the other night. It's like a whole fresh perspective on a movie that I'd kind of written off from my younger years. If um, people really like Zodiac, like this podcast, watched this movie and, and, and liked it, is there another m movie that you would recommend for them? I mean, like David Fincher's whole catalog, I would say, you know, <laughs> like um, I, I'd probably cautiously recommend Mindhunter, which is like Zodiac's like an easy, fun, breezy hang compared to Mindhunter. <laughs> like, I'm sure just know what you're getting into. But again, it's another film or it's a series on Netflix that really like talks about FBI uh, investigators trying to like uh, profile and make sense of serial killers. They're doing one-on-one -on -one interviews and trying to understand what it is to like prevent this from happening in the future. I feel like if you watch Zodiac and you didn't know much about the Zodiac and found that interesting, which is what this is at the heart of this is why are we obsessed with serial 
killers. But if you are interested in this story and what really happened in 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 real life and want a little bit m- more of it, there really is a fantastic podcast um, about this from uh, iHeartMedia and Tenderfoot TV um, called Monster Zodiac, and they've got a couple different in this series about things that have happened in in in, in real life, and they do sort of investigative reporting that digs into all of this. Um, and it's um, a pretty good uh, encapsulation over, I think, about 10 episodes of what went on across these like decade and a half of investigations into in, into this. So if you want to spend a little bit more time with this with this case, uh, it's called Monster colon Zodiac. And it's uh, really, really quite good. Yeah. I mean, if you've listened to this podcast and watched the movie and you're just like, Man, I'm just getting started. I need more Zodiac in my life. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that's the whole point is you shouldn't listen to that podcast and like stay right. away from it. But <laughs> the, the, the irony of me uh, recommending you get more obsessed with this case is uh, maybe a problem. That's what I felt like. I was like, you know what? If you just watch Zodiac, you need to go watch Breakfast Club. Like you need to, right? <laughs> you need something to kind of cleanse the palate. You need to go watch like White Christmas or just something that's like nice <laughs> and peaceful and happy <laughs> to get away. Oh, man. Well, I think that's it for us today. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode and for watching Zodiac and thinking about the dark, unexplainable things uh, of, of life. If you haven't subscribed to the, the podcast already, do that. Uh, it, it lets you know when our new episodes come out, and it helps sort of uh, in, encourage uh, all the apps that we're on to to get the podcast out there. Subscribe, follow us on Facebook, yes. uh, join our Facebook group. Tell us what you think of this movie. Tell us what movies you want us to cover. We probably won't, but we'll act like, oh, that's a good recommendation and like pretend to listen. And so that'll make you feel better. Uh, that was a strong pitch. <laughs> no. <laughs> Until then, we'll see you next time on The Meaning of the Movie.